See, some of you are looking tanner than the last time that I saw you. Some of you redder than the last time I saw you. I'm counting fingers and all that. Nobody had a fireworks mishap, it looks like. So I'm glad to, to see that. But happy 4th of July weekend. This is not only a week where we get to celebrate and, and be grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. Not just freedoms to set off fireworks or barbecue or go swim in the lake, but freedoms to do this. I was reminded this week, I read an article about some of our brothers and sisters in North Korea uh, that are meeting in underground churches, some of the fastest growing bodies of Christ in the world occur in places like China and North Korea under the most intense persecution. And yet we take for granted that we can show up and we got to do a little bit of work to set this building up, but that's sort of the biggest barrier that we have to gathering. And so we're grateful for that. But this also happens to be the week where we're sending about 140 of our youth to camp. And so I'm really excited across all of our churches, about 140 young people and 30 some odd leaders. Asher's going to be there. Some of our very best we're sending to go and worship and lead and dig into God's word with our young people talking about this idea of identity. Who are you? How have you been made? What does it mean that you're made in the image of God? How does the Bible speak to who you are versus what the world says that you are? So what I want to do before we go any further is just to pray. Pray for all of those headed to camp. Pray that this would be a, uh, a valuable, uh, impactful time for those folks that are going to be down at camp along this week. So let's pray together if you would. God, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for just even thinking back on uh, when I was a teenager some 20 years ago and, and uh, the way that even though I didn't understand it and I thought I was just there for the games and the slip and slides and hanging out with my friends, but the way that you used camp to uh, impact me even in ways that I didn't appreciate or understand until years and years later. So God, I don't know uh, who's, who's in a spot where there's harvest to be had this week and, and some of the young people that are going, those folks that need to, to make a decision to follow you in a way that's going to impact their families and their schools and their friend groups. God, I don't know who it is that where you're just planting seeds right now that are going to bloom years and years later, but God, we trust you with this week. We trust you with all of the hours of prep and logistics and everything that happens and needs to happen for a camp like this to take place. God, we just trust you with this time. We trust you with this week. We just pray that you would be glorified and that in amongst the fun and all of that good stuff that's going to take place down there with 140 young people gathered, God, that the, the focus, that the real uh, energy would be put into time spent in your word as, as we answer this question that's on many of our minds. And in fact, I would say on the minds of adults and kids and everyone in between, God, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? These things that the world is quick to offer a ton of answers to. But God, I just pray that our young people this week would be confronted with the truth of your word, with who their creator says that they are, not with who social media says that they are. And so we just trust you with all of that. Pray that you would, would bless the efforts of all the leaders. Uh, bless Trey as he speaks, those that are leading worship. God, that all of that would be uh, to your glory and we'd see a lot of fruit coming out of that. We thank you for that. We thank you for your word and our time together in it this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So please do continue to pray for our youth this week. Really excited to hear the stories that I know are going to come out of that. This morning, I want to talk about a word that you and I, uh, we don't like very much. And that word is no. Anybody else feel that? Like we just hate hearing the word no. And that's true for the littlest members of our family. So my almost two-year-old Dorothy, uh, she has this fun trick. I think we're almost grown out of this, but she has this fun trick where she loves to put her hands in the toilet. Anybody 
have a kid that's been through that. Like, like she just loved, we, we actually had to get locks to put on our toilet. If you've been to our house, chances are you've gone into the restroom, you've come out a minute or two later and said something like, I can't figure out how to get into the toilet, which is always like a weird deal, but then we have to show you how the lock works. But even with those, there are these moments where we forget to lock it or the, the lid has been left, left up and you could just see Dorothy, like her eyes just sparkling. She sees her moment. And you just see her making a beeline towards that toilet, ready to just like, I mean, I'm not talking about she like dips a hand. She will like stir it like it's soup in the water. And so we see Dorothy making this move and I've got to go, Dorothy, no, no, we're not going to put our hands in the toilet. That's just something as a family we've decided that we're not going to be about. Like we're not going to put our hands in the toilet. And it's so funny of something so simple. There's just something about me looking at her and going, Dorothy, no, you just see her face drops. Sometimes she'll just walk back over crying. Like, what do you mean? I can't play in the toilet. Like just so devastated at hearing this no. In fact, it's true for us as adults, right? Not just for kids. So every year down in Augusta, there's this golf tournament called the Masters. It's right around the corner from where I grew up. And every year there's a lottery where you can put your name in and they draw names. I don't know how it works, but they draw names to see, do you get the, not a free ticket, but do you get the right to spend way too much for a ticket to go watch this golf tournament. And every year, I, about this time of year, I put my name in the list. And every year, in, sometime in July, I get an email that says, we regret to inform you you've not been selected, which is really just a really nice way to say no tickets for you, right? We hate this idea of being told no. And those are silly examples, but when we hear no, whether it's something that we desire, whether it's a plan that we have that is derailed, whether it's this desire of our our heart, whether it's something we've been praying about for a long time, a relationship, whatever it is, when we get a no, it's frustrating can be deflating, it's irritating, right? We feel something, especially when it's a good God-honoring desire of our heart. And yet it seems like even though my heart's in the right place, and we'll talk about this in a minute, my motives are good. This is a good thing that I desire that I'd like to see happen. And yet it seems like God is telling me no. And so the question for us this morning, amidst the frustration that comes with that, amidst the, the, the anger or the deflation that comes, whatever we feel, what can we actually learn from the no? Can we grow even when God says no, or at least not right now, or we regret to inform you? How can we grow in that? We're going to see David this morning. We're we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we continue our study of David. And we're going to see David have this desire that wells up in his heart. And by all accounts, it's a really good thing that David desires. And he's going to bring that before the prophet Nathan. And even though it's a good thing that David wants to do, and even though David's been blessed immensely over the course of his life, as we've seen over the last 10, 11 weeks, the answer from God is going to be No. What I want to see both in the way that God responds to David's request, but then in the way that David reacts, which may be a bit different than how you and I tend to react when God shuts down our plans, is how do we learn from this when we get a no? How do we learn and grow when it seems like God is saying, no, 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 not right now. So that's where we're headed this morning. I know with it being the summer, we've got a lot of folks in and out. I'm glad y'all are here, here on a 4th of July week. We've got a lot of folks that are worshiping in sandier locales today. And so I want to just do a quick recap of where we've been in the life of David. We'll do it quickly. I think I've got that picture 
that, uh, yep, there we go. So David, we're, we're uh, a ways into the story of David. We're actually week 11 of this. We've got just a few weeks left as we walk through the story of David. So you recall he was a shepherd boy, youngest son of Jesse, Samuel, uh, uh, hears from God, hey, you're going to go anoint the next king of Israel. So he goes and finds David, he anoints him king, but then it's another 20 plus years before he's made king officially of the nation of Israel. And he spends that time, there's highs there, right? He kills Goliath. He's serving in the, the court of the king, playing the harp for him, like best friends with the king's son, really good stuff. And then there's low moments. Saul, the king, multiple times trying to kill David, spends his time in the wilderness on the run from Saul until finally... Years later, he becomes the king. But even then, it's not the king over the entire nation of Israel, right? He's king of Judah. There's all this fighting over the the northern part of the kingdom. And it's another seven years of war and fighting and backstabbing and all these interesting stories at the start of 2 Samuel before David becomes king of the entire united kingdom of Israel. And throughout this, through the highs and the lows, through interactions with Saul and Jonathan and Abner and, and Abigail and Nabal and all these characters, we see God refining, guiding, growing David in such a way that he can make him into the man that he needs him to be to lead his people. To be a man after God's own heart that's going to rule and reign and take charge of God's people in a way that honors God. Not that's perfect that honors God. And so we see that over the course of this story. And so last week we talked about kind of this puzzling story and Seth did a great job talking about Uzzah and this idea of after decades away, the Ark of the Covenant making its way back into Jerusalem. And so finally you've got David, right? Kingdoms are united. The enemy uh, uh, armies are, are pushed back. You've got the, the Ark there in Jerusalem. David's in his palace. And finally, after 20 plus years, there's peace. Like 22 years of David running and fighting and running and fighting and running and fighting. And now finally, here he is in the palace in Jerusalem. The ark is there and he's got a little bit of an opportunity to rest. And what I want to see this morning is where David's heart goes, what's kind of on his mind and on his heart as he gets sort of a moment of peace and quiet. Now, if you live your life like we do, I'm sure many of you do, right? Like that's a lot to ask, peace and quiet, right? Or even just a moment to stop and breathe and think. I was on a flight recently from Houston to Dallas. And I, I got on the flight and it was one of those where like I, I didn't really feel like reading or watching something on the little screen. Or I just remember just sitting there like, right, I can breathe. I can think for a minute, right? Those moments are few and far between at the pace with which we run. And I imagine the same is true here for David. But we see here at the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, God has ordained this moment, this time of rest and peace such that he can actually stop and and think, stop and dream and plan and cast vision for his kingdom. So let's pick it up there, 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. We'll have it on the screens. There's also Bibles on the, the two tables with the communion. You're welcome to grab one of those as well. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 1. Let's pick up the story. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Let's pause there. So David, right, he's, he's in the palace 
He's finally got this sort of peace. He takes a look around and he notices a discrepancy that just doesn't sit right with him. He's got this beautiful palace of cedar. And there's these stories prior to this where you've got other nations actually sending tribute in the form of cedar and gold and all this great stuff that allows him to build this, temp, this uh, palace that he's in. And so David is sitting there going, this doesn't feel right because here I am in this beautiful palace. And yet the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem, but it's just in a tent that doesn't feel right to me. And so he goes to Nathan with this concern and it's great. He doesn't even have to tell him what his plan is. And Nathan immediately is like, yeah, you should go do that thing. Now, I don't know if this is because Nathan just sort of hears his heart and says, yeah, that sounds like a good concern to have. Seems like your heart is in the right place. I don't know if it's because Nathan's just like, dude, everything you touch seems to turn to gold. God's obviously with you. So why would this be any different? But either way, Nathan... It's the first time we hear from Nathan. We know he's the prophet that later, right, is going to confront David after his sin with Bathsheba. But here he's got good news. He's like, yeah, dude, go for it. Whatever you're thinking, whatever you're going to do, clearly God is on your side. So therefore go make it happen. And we think, right, that this is a kind of the simple story, how we might write it. Great. All right. He says, go do it. David does it. End of this chapter is, and David built a magnificent temple. The end, right? That seems to be how much of the last few chapters of David's life has gone. But then something really unexpected happens. Look at verse 4. It says, But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? The, the parallel account of this in First Chronicles 17 says it more strongly. He says, You are not the one to build me a house to to dwell in. And I want to be careful here, right? God's no to David doesn't seem to be a result of some sin in David's life that disqualifies him from building a temple, at least based on what we read here. It doesn't seem to be that there's an issue with his qualifications or ability. I mean, he built this palace. Surely he's got some like architectural skills or at least the right guys on his crew, right? It doesn't seem to be an issue with that. It doesn't even seem to be a problem with his motives. I think we see that in the fact that Nathan... A prophet of God is so quick to say, yeah, you should go do this. And in fact, later in, in 2 Kings, God speaking to David, he says, you did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple. Nevertheless, even though your motives are good, your desire is good, God says the answer is still a no. And I think sometimes we can, we can believe that because we have this desire that is left unfulfilled or we have this, this plan that gets derailed or this thing we ask God for that doesn't come to be, that that means that there's some sin in our lives or there's some, something wrong with our motivations. Now, don't get me wrong. It is great to stop and check your heart. It's always a good idea to say, do I want this for the right reasons? Do I want the right one, to be glorified in this thing that I desire, or is it about me? It's always good to check your heart. But just because God seems to be saying no, seems to be derailing your plan, it doesn't mean that your motives are in the wrong place. It doesn't mean that what you desire is a bad thing. I think that's the case here for David. So if it's not that simple, if it's not that easy just to say, well, clearly his heart's in the wrong place, therefore God's not going to let this temple be built by David, then what else should we be learning or taking away from God telling David no? 
Now, for you, it may not be a temple, but as we think about this this morning, I want you to shine this light on whatever it is in your life, whatever seemingly God-honoring desire or plan that you have for yourself, for your children, for your family, whatever it is. If God is telling you no or seems to be telling you no, or at least not right now, what is it that he might have you learn from this? I see four things in this chapter, and I want to run through those here. This morning, four things that we see in God's response to David and in David's reaction to God. I'll have them on the screen as well if you're the note taking type. First, God's no gives us an opportunity to realize that He is in control, helps us to realize or perhaps remember that He is in control. Look what He says in verse 6 as He replies to David through the prophet Nathan. He says, I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling wherever I have moved with all the Israelites. Did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, this might sound a little bit harsh, and sometimes I think God works in a way that's fairly direct when he speaks to us, when he speaks to his people But he basically is saying to David, look, I don't need you to build me a temple. I'm not dependent on you to accomplish my will. Seth talked about this a little bit last week with Uzzah, right? God didn't need Uzzah to protect him or or protect his image. And that might sound a little harsh, right? David has this really good desire coming from a really good place. So it might feel harsh for him to say, hey, I don't need you, David. But think about it like this. Think about it like this. After 20 years of fighting and running and fighting and running, David finally has God-ordained, God-given peace and rest. And what is he doing? What many of us do when things get quiet, right? He's, he's pacing and he's wringing his hands and he's stressing and sleeplessness and all of this over, but this isn't right. And, and God needs a temple and I'm not doing this thing. And what God is saying is, hey, I am not on my throne stressing out about this. I'm not sitting there on my throne. God is not saying, hey, I just hope David figures it out. I really hope he gets with the program. I really hope he accomplishes my will. Otherwise, we're going to have to go to plan B. And I don't know what plan B is, right? God is not stressing and surprised and worried in the way that David is in his palace. God reminds David, hey, from the very beginning, I have been in control of this thing. I mean, you think about it from the the moment I created Adam and Eve and they messed it up. And then in Genesis three, I give you this picture of like, this is where we're headed. I have got a plan, this incredible redemptive plan. When I called Abraham and and made him a nation, and even when you're in Egypt and all hope seems lost and you're enslaved, I have been in control. He's like, who was it that sent plagues? Who was it that changed the Pharaoh's heart? Who was it that like that splits the sea and lets you walk across on dry land? None of that makes any sense unless God is the one that's in control. See, I don't think this is him belittling David or trying to, to squash him. I think it's him comforting David. Say, man, this is not up to you. Man, far from needing David's provision, God's like, I am the provider. I am the provider. David, trust me, if I want a temple for my ark, I'm going to have a temple for my ark. You can rest and trust 
in me because I'm the one in control. Now, I think we can take that too far. Let me pause here for just a second. We could go too far the other way with that. Say, okay, God's in control. He's sovereign. He doesn't need me. Therefore, I might as well just sit back and do nothing, right? Because here's the, the crazy thing. Please don't let me be communicate in this first point that God doesn't use us or that we have no part in this deal. Because here's the crazy thing, right? The, the same God who could obviously accomplish his will in a million different ways, right? He, with a word, right? He, he speaks life into existence. He breathes life into Adam. He creates the world ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he creates everything. He, he sends the plagues. He parts the sea. He guides his people, provides them with food Somehow he makes manna and then here's food and you're fed. Like this is the God who can accomplish his will in any way he chooses. And yet for some reason he chooses to accomplish his will through fallen, messy, stubborn human beings. So God doesn't need us, but in his grace and his mercy, he chooses to allow us to play a part in his redemptive work across history. Which is crazy to think about, right? I think about it like this. I think my life is like in analogies and stories. That's kind of how I process this. So one of the things I love to do is to cook. I'm not an artist or a painter or a crocheter. We've got really talented folks in this church that do all that kind of stuff. The one kind of creative thing that I like to do is to cook. I like to play around in the kitchen. And so every once in a while, my almost five-year-old Margaret is over in the kids building right now. She'll come in and she'll want to help dad with the cooking, right? Which is, is great. So she comes in there and she, she wants to like find ingredients in the pantry and she brings her little stool and she's standing up there mixing stuff and measuring things out. And it's awesome. I don't, I don't allow her to, to cut things yet. I've got one child I can't trust with a toilet, another one I can't trust with a knife, but that's parenting. But she helps me with these things. But here's the deal, right? I, I don't have Margaret come and help me cook because I'm in the kitchen like, ah, oh, I just, I really need a sous chef on this one. I really, I could use an extra set of hands. I don't know if the recipe is going to be right if I don't have my four-year-old in the kitchen with me, right? No, I, I invite her in to what I'm doing in the kitchen and what I'm making for dinner because I want to watch her grow. I want her to spend time with her dad. I want her to enjoy being in my presence. I want her to get to know who I am, to be in fellowship and relationship with me as her father. Now, I don't want to strain this, this uh, analogy too much. Like God is up to way more than chicken cordon bleu or whatever I'm making for dinner, right? But when we think about God, even though he doesn't need us and we, we learn to trust him in that, we humbly acknowledge this isn't about me. It's not dependent on me, but rather than me getting discouraged in that or rather than me trying to, to wrestle control back away from God, right? That's my tendency. God's like, I'm in control. I've got this. You don't. I'm like, hi, you'll see. I'm going to do it anyway, right? I'm going to try to get out ahead of you, make it happen. That never ends well. But rather than any of those things, we just humbly acknowledge God and you don't, need me, but yet you choose to work your will through me, through my trust in you, through my obedience. See how that's freeing and comforting? I don't have to rely on, man, I hope I get this temple just right, right? Instead, I can say, God, you are in control. You're sovereign. That your sovereign will in our world being worked out doesn't depend on my best efforts. It depends on your power, which is way above and beyond what I've got to give. God gives a no 
to David, but in so doing, he, he gives him an opportunity to realize that God is in control of this thing. But not only that, he encourages David, number two, to remember his faithfulness, to remember God's faithfulness. Look at verse eight. Really cool the way that he does this. He says, now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. I think it can be easy, right? We have this desire, this thing we'd like to see happen. I think it could be easy when that doesn't come to fruition, when it feels like God is telling us no, to assume then that God is mad at us, that God is suddenly against us, that he's removed himself from us, or at the very least that he's forgotten about us. And you could see David here, right? You could see where he'd be asking questions. If he gets this no, you could understand if he were to say, well, has God turned his back on me? Especially everything it seems like that David has done, God's been with him. God's been in it. He's, he's been fruitful. He's driven out the Philistines, united the kingdom. Israel is more prosperous and powerful than they've been to this point. So you could see David as he gets a no here going, well, does that mean God's not with me anymore? Anybody ever asked that question? In those moments of, there's just this, I know we have as we, we think through all the challenges with, with having children and adopting and all these things, there's these moments where you go, does God not care about me anymore? Has he turned his back on me? But what does God do? He doesn't just promise him, here's what I'm going to do for you. He says, David, think about where you've come from. 22 years ago, you were a shepherd boy, youngest son of Jesse. You were essentially a nobody, at least in the eyes of the world. And think about what I've done through you. Think about the way in which you you were anointed king. You were protected from from spears hurling at your head from Saul. And all this time in the wilderness, I've protected you. I've brought you to this point. I've given you victory. I've given you rest here in this palace. Influence, all of these things, riches of the kingdom, all of this. Yeah, there's been bumps along the way. It's not like David's not had difficult moments, right? He spent years in the wilderness on the run, having to ask folks like Nabal for food to feed his men. It's not like it's all been easy, but God says, can you not look back and see where I've been faithful to you up to this point? Can you not look back and see that even in those difficult moments, just like in these moments of rest and victory, that I've been there with you. And so if that's true, David, that's who I am as your God is faithful to you, then why would now be any different? Even in the face of a no, you're not going to build this temple for me. If I, God, am the same yesterday, today, and forever, why am I going to be any less faithful now than I've been for the last 22 years? If you're here today and you find yourself in a season where God is, feels like a shut a door in your face, Some opportunity has not come to be that you're desiring, even if it's a really good God-honoring desire. Talk about this with folks that are single and desiring a mate, those that are desiring children. Maybe it's some next season for your family or for church planting or whatever the thing is. 
can be so easy to get caught in, man, God must be done with me. And I would encourage you this morning, if you're there, like David might have been here, to do just like David is doing now to say, can I look back? Not that it's always been easy or perfect or even clean, but can I look back and see where God has been faithful to me through all of it, where he's not left me on my own, even in the dark moments. And if that's true, why would it be any different right now? Why would he start turning his back on his people now just because he's said, no, this is not my will for you? In those moments, I think for us, just like it is for David, we have this incredible opportunity to remember God's faithfulness when his answer seems to be a no. But here's where it gets really good, as if that's not all great enough, right? God is in control. He's faithful to us. But this is where this whole story and this whole conversation goes from a really neat story with David to, I think, one of the most impactful chapters in the Old Testament, if not the Bible. Because God is going to not only point David toward his power and his faithfulness, but he's going to point him to a much bigger story that David can't even see right now. Look at verse 11. Really, really good. Verse 11. He says, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. And the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Now check this out. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire Revelation. Now, I love the reversal that takes place here. Up to this point, right, he's been sort of comforting David, reminding him of his faithfulness, his power, all that he's done before him. And then he kind of reverses the script on David here. He says, oh, you want to build a house for me? No, check out what I'm doing. I'm going to make you a house. He's like, I've got in my mind more than just this incredible temple of cedar and gold and all of these things. I've got in view a kingship, a throne. Eternity is the story that I'm writing in this. We see this come true, at least the first part of this in the beginning of 1 Kings. So there's a piece of this where he says, okay, this, this temple, this desire that you have is going to come true. This temple is going to be built. In fact, it's your son, Solomon, who's gonna be king after you. If that name sounds familiar, when we talked about David and Bathsheba, this was the son of David and Bathsheba that kind of pointed us to God's mercy and his provision, his love, even in the face of David's sin. He says, this son, Solomon, is going to be king after you, and he is going to build me a temple. But then he says, this is about so much more than that. So much more than a temple. Verse 16, remember he said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now we know, right? We know David is going to die. In fact, he kind of promises him that, doesn't he? Like when your days are done and you're laid to rest, David, you are going to die. And so will Solomon. 
but yet your throne will continue forever. There's going to be a king that will come that is beyond anything David can do, anything that Solomon can do. There will be a king that is going to come in your line that is going to establish a throne, not only over the people of Israel in Jerusalem, but at the right hand of the father over every nation and every person forever. See, David's concerned with this small piece of, of history, this thing that is in front of him, this desire to build a temple, this concern with God's presence resting permanently with his people here in Jerusalem. And, and God's like, no, 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 I've got so much more in this story that I'm writing. And I think about, most of you are aware, this church planting deal, whether you know it or not, you've signed up for being a part of this church, this church planting deal that we're doing comes with a lot of work and a lot of uncertainty. Am I right? For those that have been involved in this rule, that's part of what we're doing here. Even now we, we were talking this morning about some needs we've got in some spots. We could use a couple more folks willing to go hold babies in the nursery once a month. We could use at least one more person willing to do what Jeremy's doing back there and clicking through slides. And as much time as, as we might spend and the leaders of this church might spend stressing about and planning and making schedules and all of these things, it can become easy to forget that this isn't ultimately about radius church. I'm going to say something that Maybe I shouldn't say as a church planner. I don't know if this is like against all the books and stuff, but Radius Church is not forever, right? Radius Church is not ultimate. This thing that we're doing here in church planning, trying to love Irma well, trying to reach our neighbors with the gospel is not about me. It's not about Asher or Seth or Meredith or Kelly or whoever, right? As much as I love y'all, don't get me wrong. It's not ultimately about us because like David, like Solomon, like the temple that Solomon built, our days on this earth are going to come to an end. We can take heart in knowing this isn't about me. It's ultimately about a much bigger story that we refer to as the gospel. This redemptive story that God has been writing since before the beginning of time to redeem a people to himself. And so what we do here matters in that it is a small, small piece of this bigger story that God has for us. That's the promise that God made to Adam and Eve when he said he was going to crush the head of the serpent. It's the promise that he reiterates to Abraham when he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's the promise he continued with Moses and then here to David to say, hey, you're going to die and your rule is going to end. And Solomon's going to build the temple, but even he's going to die. And yet through you in a way that you don't even understand yet, I am going to establish a king of kings, a throne forever. You're in this moment of kind of temporary peace from the Philistines and all of that. I'm going to bring the Prince of Peace whose reign will never end and never be threatened. One of whom Isaiah 9, 7, typically read this around Christmas, that says of the greatness of his government and his peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Church, even when we find ourselves in seasons where it seems like God is telling us no, 
or have this God-honoring, real, deep desire of my heart and God's just not allowed that thing to happen. When that door that I would love to be open is just slammed shut, we don't lose heart, not just because God has always been faithful and not just because he's in control, both of which are true, but because we know that no matter what right now looks like and any frustration we feel about a no from God the Father, We know that we are just a small part in this incredible eternal story that God is writing. And there's no, no, there's no broken plans or derailed vision that could possibly derail God's redemptive work in human history. That every promise of God is yes and amen, not because he gives us everything that we want or everything we put our hand to is successful, but because of Jesus Christ because of the one who sits on the throne of David forever. And here's what's so great. In light of all of that, right, it says Nathan basically brings this news back to David. He's going to give him some hard news in a few chapters, but this he gives him sort of a God says no, and this is what he told me. And we might expect, right, that David would respond like we do, stamping his feet and frustrated, right? What do you mean I can't do that thing? Or who's this Solomon kid that's not even born yet and he's going to get to do this thing that I'd like to do? Why can't I have a temple? Or like I said, maybe he's going to do like I have a tendency to do and sort of try to wrestle control away and make stuff happen anyway and try to work ahead of God. But David doesn't do any of that. In fact, he worships. His response is worship. I wish I had time to read his entire response. Let me just catch a couple of verses to show you David's incredible response to all that God has told him. Verse 22, he says, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. I like to imagine David saying, especially not me. There is no one like you and there is no God, but you, as we have heard with our own ears. Verse 25, now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised. Why? So that your name will be great forever. So that your name will be great forever. David's response is not one of self-pity, of woe is me, but I wish I could just. He's not bargaining with God. No, he says, God, I realize you are in control. I remember your faithfulness to me. I rejoice in these incredible promises of this incredible story of the gospel that you're working out and my little role in that. And as a result, I worship. I rejoice in who you are. And I worship. He turns his hopes, his plans, his dreams over to God and says, man, I get to be a part of that for your glory. Man, how great is our God. This morning, I don't know what it is that you're in here feeling like that that God's told you no on, or it feels like he's not allowing to happen. I, I would venture a guess that most of us feel some piece of that. It's my prayer for us this morning, rather than the the frustration, rather than feeling like God has turned his back on us, that we would instead see this no as an opportunity, an opportunity to trust in God and his power, to remember his faithfulness, to view what we are doing and why he's put us here in light of the gospel, this massive story across eternity, and that we would rejoice and worship. We're going to have a chance to do that here together in just a minute. Let me pray and we'll continue to sing. God, uh, there are those Sundays where it feels like I need to preach 
this thing to myself more than anyone else. And so, God, I thank you for the way even this week on uh, airplanes and hotel rooms and all kinds of craziness that's going on, just to be able to, to hear from you, God, the truth of the fact that your ways are not my ways, that your thoughts are so much higher than my thoughts. And so, God, I pray that rather than trying to make things happen according to my will, God, that I would trust your plans and your will above my own. God, that I would seek your glory above my own. God, it's incredible that in the midst of my messiness and constant failures and stubbornness and and hot-headedness and all of those things, God, that you would look down on me as your child and say, I want to use him in some way in the story that I'm writing. So God, we praise you for that. We glorify you for your mercy, for the hope that the gospel gives us, even in those moments where we get a no on something that we would like to see happen. God, I pray for those this morning who may be struggling with those things. God, that you would encounter them, that you would be in our worship as we sing and proclaim your will be done, not ours. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, who is the the promised forever king, all the way back here to David. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.